Hello, this is Sarah Fowler with the Waterfowl Podcast, and you are listening to me give a book report about Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. I am recording this today in London, Ontario, as I'm visiting my family there, and I have my daughters underneath my favorite tree. I'm going to pick it up on page 112, where I left off. The baby Michael has a cold. His head is stuffed and he can't barely breathe. Mom worries because it's Sunday and the dispensary is for the poor is closed. If you go to the doctor's house and the maid sees you, sees your from the lower classes, she tells you to go to the dispensary where you belong. If you tell her the child is dying in your arms, she'll say the doctor is in the country riding his horse. Ma'am cries because the baby is struggling to get air through his mouth. She tries to clear his nostrils with a bit of rolled up paper, but she's afraid to push it too far up. Dad says there's no need for that. You're not supposed to be pushing things inside a child's head. It looks like he's going to, to kiss the baby. Instead, he has his mouth on the little nose and he's sucking, sucking the bad stuff out of Michael's head. He spits it into the fire. Michael cries out a loud cry, and you can see him drawing the air into his head and kicking his legs and laughing. Mom looks at Dad as if he has just come down from heaven, and Dad says, That's what we did in Antrim long before there were doctors riding their horses. Michael entitles us to a few extra shillings on the dole, but Mom says it isn't enough, and now she has to go to the St. Vincent de Paul Society for food. One night, there is a knock on the door, and Ma'am sends me down to see who it is. There are two men men from the St. Vincent de Paul, and they want to see my mother and father. I tell them my parents are upstairs in Italy, and they say, What? Upstairs is where tis dry, I tell them. They They want to know what that little shed is beside our front door. I tell them it's the lavatory. They want to know why it isn't in the back of the house, and I tell them it's the lavatory for the whole lane, and it's a good thing it's not in the back of our house, or we'd have people traipsing through our kitchen with buckets that would make you sick. They say, are you sure there's one lavatory for the whole lane? I am. They say, mother of God. Ma'am calls down from Italy. Who's down there? The men. What men? From the St. Vincent de Paul. They're careful the way they step into the lake in the kitchen and they make tisk tisk and tut tut noises and they tell one another isn't this a disgrace till they get upstairs to Italy they tell mom and dad they're sorry to disturb them but the society has to be sure that they're helping deserving cases mom offers them a cup of tea but they look around and say no thank you they want to know why we're living upstairs They want to know about the lavatory. They ask questions because big people who ask all the questions they like and write in notebooks, especially when they're wearing collars and ties and suits. They ask how Michael, how old Michael is, how much dad gets at the labor exchange, and what did he last have, when did he last have a job? Why doesn't he have a job now? And what class of, 
an accent is that he has. Dad tells them the lavatory could kill us with every class of disease and the kitchen floods in the winter and we have to move upstairs to stay dry. He says the River Shannon is responsible for all the dampness in the world and killing us one by one. Malachi tells them we're living in Italy and they smile. Mam says if there's any chance of getting boots for Malachi and me and they say she'll have to come down to Osnan House and apply. She says she hasn't been feeling well since the baby came and she wouldn't be able to stand long in a queue and they say everyone has to be treated the same even a woman down in the Irish town that has triplets and thank you will make a report to the society when they're leaving Malachi wants to show them where the angel left Michael on the seventh step but dad tells him not now not now Malachi cries, and one of the men gives him a piece of toffee from his pocket, and I wish I had something to cry about so that I'd get a piece too. I have to go downstairs again and show the men where to step to keep their feet dry. They keep shaking their heads and saying, God Almighty and Mother of God, and this is desperate. It's not Italy they have upstairs. That's Calcutta. Dad is keeping Ma'am up in Italy. She should never beg that is telling ma'am up in Italy she should never beg like that what do you mean beg don't you have any pride begging for boots like that and what would you do Mr. Grand Manor would you let them go barefoot I'd rather fix the shoes they have the shoes they have are falling to pieces I can fix them he says you can't fix anything you're useless she says he comes home the next day with an old bicycle tire he sends me to Mr. Hammond, Hannon next door for the loan of the last for the loan of the last and a hammer. He takes mom's sharp knife and hacks at the tire till he has has had he has pieces to fit on the soles and heels of the shoes. Mam tells him he's going to destroy the shoes altogether, but he pounds away with the hammer, driving the nails through the rubber pieces and into the soles. Mam says, God above, if you left the shoe alone, they'd last till Easter. At least we have, we might get the boots from the same Vincent de Paul, but he won't stop till the soles and heels are covered with squares of rubber tire, which sticks out on each side of the shoe and flops before and behind. He makes us put on the shoes and tells us our feet will be good and warm, but we don't want to wear them anymore because the tire pieces are so lumpy we stumble when we walk around Italy. He sends me back to Mr. Hammond with the last and hammer, and Mrs. Hannon says, God above, what's up with your shoes? She laughs, and Mr. Hannon shakes his head, and I feel ashamed. I don't want to go to school the next day and I pretend to be sick, but dad gets up, gets us up and gives us our fried bread and tea and tells us we should be grateful we have any shoes at all, that there are boys in, Le boys in Leamy's National School who go to school barefoot on bitter days. On our way to school, Leamy's boys laugh at us because the tire pieces are so thick they add a few inches to our height and the boys say, how's the air up there? There are six or seven barefoot boys in the class and they don't say anything and wonder if it's better to have shoes with rubber tires that make you trip or stumble or go barefoot. If you had no shoes at all, 
you'd have all the barefoot boys on your side. If you have rubber tires on your shoes, you'll, you're all alone with your brother and you have to fight your own battles. I sit on the bench in the schoolyard shed and take off my shoes and stockings, but when I go into the class, the master wants to know where my shoes are. He knows I'm not going, I'm not one of the barefoot boys, and he makes me go back to the yard, bring in the shoes, and put them on. Then he says to the class, there is sneering here. There is jeering at the misfortune of others. Is there anyone in this class who thinks he's perfect? Raise your hand. There are no hands. Is there anyone in this class that comes from a rich family with money galore to spend on shoes? Raise your hand. There are no hands, he says. There are boys here who have to mend their shoes whatever way they can. There are boys in this class with no shoes at all. It's not their fault, and it's no shame. Our Lord has no shoes. He died shoeless. Do you see him hanging on the cross sporting shoes? Do you, boys? No, sir. What is it you don't see our Lord doing? Hanging on the cross and sporting shoes, sir. Now, if I hear of one boy in this class jeering and sneering at McCourt or his brother over their shoes, the stick will come out. What will come out, boys? The stick, sir. The stick will sting, boys. The ash plant will whistle through the air and will land on the backside of a boy that jeers, the boy that sneers. Where will it land, boys? On the boy that jeers, sir, and the boy that sneers, sir. The boys bother us no more, and we wear our shoes with rubber tires the, the few weeks to Easter when the St. Vincent de Paul Society gives us a gift of boots. See these three stars here? That's a time passing. So this is like the end when they get boots, and then this is a, another time. If I have to get up in the middle of the night to pee in the bucket, I go to the top of the stairs and look down to see if the angel might be on the seventh step. Sometimes I'm sure there's a light there, and if someone's asleep, I sit on the step in case the angel might be bringing another baby or just coming for a visit. I ask ma'am if the angel just brings the babies and then forgets about them. She says, of course not. The angel never forgets the babies and comes back to make sure the baby is happy. I could ask the angel all kinds of questions and I'm sure he'd answer unless it's a girl angel, but I'm sure a girl angel would answer questions too. I never heard anyone say they didn't. I sit on the seventh step a long time and I'm sure the angel is there. I tell him all the things you can't tell your mother or father for fear of being hit on the head or told to go out and play. I tell them about school and how I'm afraid of the master and his sticks when he roars at us in Irish and I still don't know what he's talking about because I came from America and the other boys are learning Irish a year before me. I stay on the seventh step till it gets cold and dad gets up and tells me to go back to bed. He's the one who told me the angel comes to the seventh step in the first place and you'd think he'd know why I'm sitting there. I told him one night that I was waiting for an angel and he said, Oh, now Francis, you're a bit of a dreamer. I get back into bed, but I can hear him whisper to my mother. The poor wee lad was sitting on the stairs talking away to an angel. 
he laughs and my mother laughs and I think isn't it curious the way big people laugh over an angel who brought them a new child before Easter we move back downstairs to Ireland Easter is better than Christmas because the air is warmer the walls are not dripping with the damp and the kitchen isn't a lake anymore and if we're up early we might catch the sun slant for a minute through the kitchen window in fine weather men sit outside smoking their cigarettes if they have them looking at the world and watching us play women stand with their arms folded chatting they don't sit because all they do is stay at home take care of children clean the house and cook a bit and the men need the chairs the men sit because they are worn out from walking to the labor exchange every morning to sign for the dole discussing the world's problems and wondering what to do with the rest of the day some stop at the bookie to study the form and place a shilling or two on a sure thing some spend hours in the carnegie library reading english and irish newspapers a man on the dole read needs to keep up on things because all the other men on the dole are experts on what's going on in the world a man on the dole must be ready in any case in in case another man on the dole brings up hitler or mussolini or the terrible state of the chinese millions a man on the dole goes home after a day with the bookie or the newspaper and his wife will not begrudge him a few minutes with the ease and peace of his cigarette and his tea and time to sit in his chair and think of the world easter is better than christmas because dad makes us takes us to the redemptorist church where all the priests wear white and sing they're happy because our lord is up in heaven i ask dad if the baby in the crib is dead and he says no he was 33 when he died and there he is hanging up on the cross I don't understand how he grew up so fast that he's hanging there with a hat made of thorns and bloody everywhere and blood everywhere dripping from his head, his hands, his feet and a big hole near his belly. Dad says I'll understand when I grow up. He tells me that all the time now and I want to be big like him so I can understand everything. It must be lovely to wake up in the morning and understand everything. I wish I could be like all the pe big people in the church, standing and kneeling and praying and understanding everything. At the Mass, people go up to the altar and the priest puts something in their mouths. They come back to their seats with their heads down, their mouths moving. Malachi says he's hungry and he wants some too. Dad says, shush, that's Holy Communion, the body and blood of our Lord. But Dad, shh, it's a mystery. There's no use asking more questions. If you ask a question, they tell you it's a mystery. You'll understand when you're grown up. Be a good boy. Ask your mother. Ask your father. For the love of Jesus, leave me alone. Go out and play. Dad gets his first job in Limerick at the cement factory and Mam is happy. She won't have to stand in the queue at the St. Vincent de Paul Society asking for clothes or boots or for Malachi and me. She says it's not begging, it's charity. But Dad says it's begging and shameful. Ma'am says she can now pay off the few pounds she owes Kathleen O'Connell's shop, and she can pay back what she owes her own mother. She hates to be under the obligation of anyone, especially her own mother. The cement factory is miles outside Limerick, and that means Dad has to be out of the house by 6 in the morning. 
He doesn't mind because he's used to long walks. The night before, Mam makes him a flask of tea, a sandwich, and a hard-boiled egg. She feels sorry for him the way he has to walk three miles out and three miles back. A bicycle would be handy, but you'd have to be working for a year for the price of it. Friday is payday, and Mam is out of bed early, cleaning the house and singing. Anyone can see why I wanted your kiss and had to be, and the reason is this. There isn't much to clean in this house. She sweeps the kitchen floor and the floor of Italy upstairs. She washes the four jam yards we use for mugs. She says if Dad's jobs last, we'll get proper cups and maybe saucers, and someday, with the help of God and his blessed mother, we'll have sheets on the bed, and if we... save a long time a blanket or two instead of these old coats which people must have left behind during the great famine she boils water and washes the rags that that keeps michael from shitting all over the pram and the house itself oh she says we'll have a lovely tea when your pop brings home the wages tonight pop she's in a good mood Sirens and whistles go off all over the city when the men finish work at half past five. Malik and I are excited because we know that when your father works and brings home the wages on a Friday, you get the Friday penny. We know this from other boys whose fathers work, and we know that after your tea, you can go to Kathleen O'Connell's shop and buy sweets. If your mother is in a good mood, she might even give you a tuppence to go to Lyric Cinema the next day to see a film with James Cagney. The men who work in factories and shops in the city are coming into the lanes to have their supper, wash themselves, and go to the pub. The women go to the film in the Coliseum or the Lyric Cinema. They buy sweets and wild woodbine cigarettes. And if their husbands are working a long time, they treat themselves to boxes of black magic chocolates. They love the romance films and they have a great time crying their eyes out when there's an unhappy ending or a handsome lover goes away to be shot by Hindus and other non-Catholics. We have to wait a long time for Dad to walk the miles from the cement factory. We can't have our tea till he's home. And that it's very hard because you smell the cooking of other families in the lane. Mam says it's a good thing payday is Friday when you can't eat meat because the smell of bacon or sausages in other houses would drive her out of her mind. We can still have bread and cheese and a nice jar jam jar of tea with lashings of milk and sugar and what more do you want? The women are gone to the cinemas, the men are in the pubs, and Dad still isn't home. Mam says it's a long way to the cement factory, even if he's a fast walker. She says that, but her eyes are watery, and she's not singing anymore. She's sitting by the fire, smoking a wild woodbine she got on credit from Kathleen O'Connell. The fag is the only luxury she has, and she'll never forget Kathleen for her goodness. She doesn't know how long she can keep the water boiling in this kettle. There's no use making the tea till Dad gets home because it will be stewed, coddled, boiled, and unfit to drink. Malachi says he's hungry and she gives him a piece of bread and cheese to keep him going. She says, This job could be the saving of us. Tis hard for him to get a job with his northern accent and if he loses this one, I don't know what we're going to do. The darkness is in the lane and we have to light a candle. She has to give us 
our tea, bread and cheese, because we're so hungry and we can't wait another minute. She sits at the table, eats a bit of bread of cheese, smokes her wild woodbine. She goes to the door to see if Dad is coming down the lane, and she talks about the paydays when we search for him all over Brooklyn, she says. Someday we'll all go back to America and we'll have a nice place to live and a lavatory down the hall like the one in Classen Avenue and not the filthy thing outside our door. The women are coming home from the cinemas laughing and the men singing from the pubs. Mam says there's no use waiting up any longer. If dad stays in the pub till closing time, then there'll be nothing left from his wages and we might as well go to bed. She lies in her bed with Michael in her arms. It's quiet in the lane and I can hear her crying even though she pulls an old coat over her face and I can hear in the distance my father. I know it's my father because he's the only one in Limerick who sings that song from the north. Roddy McCorley goes to die on the bridge of Toom today. He comes round the corner at the top of the lane and starts Kevin Barry. He sings a verse, stops Holds onto a wall, cries over Kevin Barry. People stick their heads out windows and doors and tell him, For Jesus' sake, put a sock in it. Some of us have to get up in the morning for work. Go home and sing your fecking patriotic songs. He stands in the middle of the lane and tells the world to step outside. He's ready to fight, ready to fight to die for Ireland, which is more than he can say for the men in Limerick who are known the length and breadth of the world for collaborating with the perfidious Saxons. He's pushing in our door and singing, And if, when all a vigil kept, the West's asleep, the West's asleep, alas, and well, my errand weep, that conic lies in slumber deep, but hark a voice like thunder spake, the West's awake, the West's awake, Sing, oh, hurrah, let England quake. We'll watch till death for Aaron's sake. He calls from the bottom of the stairs. Angela, Angela, is there a drop of tea in this house? She doesn't answer, and he calls again. Francis, Malachi, come down here, boys. I have a Friday penny for you. I want to go down and get the Friday penny, but Mam is sobbing with the coat over her mouth, and Malachi says, I don't want his old Friday penny. He can keep it. Dad is stumbling up the stairs, making a speech about how we all have to die for Ireland. He lights a match and touches it to the candle by Mam's bed. He holds the candle over his head and marches around the room singing, See who comes over the red-blossomed heather, their green banners kissing the pure mountain air. Heads erect, eyes to front, stepping proudly together. Sure, freedom sits thrown sure freedom sits throned on each proud spirit there michael wakes and lets out a loud cry the hannons are banging on the wall next door mom is telling dad he's a disgrace and why doesn't he get out of the house altogether he stands in the middle of the floor with a candle over his head he pulls a penny from his pocket and waves it to malachi and me your friday penny boys he says I want you to jump up out of bed and line up here like two soldiers and promise to die for Ireland and I'll give you two of your and I'll give the two of you your Friday penny. Malachi sits up in bed. I don't want it, he says. 
and I tell him I don't want it either. Dad stands for a minute, swaying, and puts the penny back in his pocket. He turns toward Mom and says, You're not sleeping in this bed tonight. He... And Mom says, you're not sleeping in this bed tonight. He makes his way downstairs with the candle, sleeps in a chair. Mrs. Work the next morning. Mrs. Work in the morning loses the job at the cement factory. And we're back on the dole again. Chapter 4. Page 124. You can get another one. The master says there's time to prepare for first confession and first communion to know and remember all the questions and answers in the catechism and become good Catholics to know the difference between right and wrong and to die for the faith if called on. The master says it's a glorious thing to die for the faith and dad says it's a glorious thing to die for Ireland and I wonder if there's anyone in the world who would like us to live. My brothers are dead and my sister is dead. And I wonder if they died for Ireland or the faith. Dad says they were too young to die for anything. Mom says it was disease and starvation and him never having a job. Dad says, oh, Angela, put on his cap and goes for a long walk. The master says we're each to bring three pence for a first communion catechism with the green cover. The catechism, catechism has all the questions and answers we have to know by heart before we can receive First Communion. Older boys in the fifth class have a thick confirmation catechism with a red cover that costs sixpence. I'd love to be big and important and parade around with a red confirmation catechism, but I don't think I'll live that long the way I'm expected to die for this or that. I want to ask why there is so many big people who haven't died for Ireland or the faith, but I know if you ask a question like that, you will get the lump thump on a head or told to go out and play. It's very handy to have Mikey Malloy living around the corner from me. He's 11. He has fits and behind his back, we call him Malloy the Fit. People in the lane say the fit is an affliction and now I know what affliction means. Mikey knows everything because he has visions in his fits and he reads books. He's the expert in the lane on girls' bodies and dirty things in general, and he promises I'll tell you everything, Frankie. When you're 11 like me and you're not so thick and ignorant. It's a good thing he says Frankie so I know he's talking to me because he has crossed eyes and you never know who he's looking at. If he's talking to Malachi and I think he's talking to me, he might go into a fit of rage and have a fit and will that will carry him off. He says it's a gift to have crossed eyes because you're like a god looking two ways at once and if you had crossed eyes in the ancient Roman times, you had no problem getting a good job. If you look at pictures of Roman emperors, you'll see they're always a great hint of crossed eyes. When he's not having a fit, he sits on the ground of the top of the lane, reading his books his father brings home from the Carnegie Library. His mother says, books, books, books. He's ruining his eyes with the reading. He needs an operation to straighten them, but who will pay for it? She tells him if he keeps on straining his eyes, they'll float together until he has one eye in the middle of his head. Even after his father calls him Cyclops, who is in a Greek story... Nora Malloy, who knows my mother from the queues at the 
St. Vincent de Paul Society. She tells ma'am that Mikey has more sense than 12 men drinking pints in a pub. He knows the names of all the popes from St. Peter to Pius the 11th. He's only 11, but he's a man, oh, a man indeed. Many a week he saves a family from pure starvation. He borrows a handcart from Aidan Farrell and knocks on doors all over Limerick to see if they're people who want coal or turf delivered. And down the dock road he'll go haul great bags and a hundred weight or more. He'll run messages for old people who can't walk and they don't have a penny to give him or a prayer will do. And if they don't have a penny to give him, a prayer will do. If he earns a little money, he hands it all to his mother who loves her, Mikey. He is her world, her heart's blood, her pulse. And if anything ever happened to him, they might as well stick her in a lunatic asylum and throw away the key. Mikey's father, Peter, is a great champion. He wins bets in the pubs by drinking more pints than anyone. All he has to do is to go out to the jake, stick his finger down his throat, and bring up all so that he can start another round. Peter is such a champion, he can stand in the jakes and throw up without using a finger. He's such a champion, they could chop off his finger and he'd carry on regardless. He wins all that money but doesn't bring it home. Sometimes he like he's like my father and drinks the dole itself, and that's why Nora Malloy is often carted off to a lunatic asylum, demented with worry over her hungry famishing family she knows as long as you're in an asylum you're safe from the world and its torments there's nothing you can do you're protected and what's the use of worrying it's well known that all the lunatics in the asylum have been dragged in but she's the only one that has been dragged out back to her five children and the champion of all pint drinkers you can tell when Nora Malloy is ready for the asylum when you see her children running around white with flour from pole to toe. That happens when Peter drinks the dole money and leaves her desperate, and she knows the men will come to take her away. You know she's inside frantic with the baking. She wants to make sure the children won't starve while she's gone, and she roams Limerick begging for flour. All She goes to the priests, nuns, Protestants, Quakers. She goes to Rank's flour mill and begs for the sweepings from the floor. She begs day and night. Peter begs her to stop, but she screams. This is what comes from drinking the dole. He tells her the bread will only go stale. She's no, There's no use talking to her. Bake, bake, bake. If she had the money, she'd bake all the flour in Limick and regions beyond. If the men didn't come... From the lunatic asylum to take her away, she'd bake till she fell to the floor. The children stuffed themselves with so much bread, people in the lane say they look like loaves. Still, the bread goes stale, and Mikey is so bothered by the waste, he talks to a rich woman with a cookbook, and she tells him, she tells him, make bread pudding. He boils the hard bread in water and sour milk and throws in sugar, and his brother loves it, even if that's all they have a fortnight their mother is in the lunatic asylum father says do you take away do they take her away because she's gone mad baking bread or does she go mad baking bread because they're taking her away nora comes home calm as if she's been at the seaside she always says where's mikey is he alive 
She worries over Mikey because he's not a proper Catholic, and if he had a fit and died, who knows where he'd wind up in the next life. He's not a proper Catholic because he could never receive his first communion for fear of getting anything on his tongue that might cause a fit and choke him. The master tried over and over with bits of limerick leader, but Mikey kept spitting them out until the master got into a state and sent him to the priest who wrote to the bishop who said, Don't bother me. Handle it yourself. The master sent a note home saying Mikey was to practice receiving communion with his father or mother, but even they couldn't get him to swallow a piece of limerick leader in the shape of a wafer. They even tried a piece of bread shaped like a wafer with bread and jam, and it was no use. The priest tells Mrs. Malloy not to worry. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonder to perform, and surely he has a special purpose for Mikey, fits and all. She has, she says, isn't it remarkable he can swallow all kinds of sweets and buns, but if it has to swallow a body of our Lord, he goes into a fit. Isn't that remarkable? She worries Mikey will have a fit and die and go to hell if he has any class of a sin on his soul. And although everyone knows he's an angel out of heaven, Mikey tells her God is not going to afflict you with the fit and then boot you into hell on top of that. What kind of God would do such a thing? Are you sure, Mikey? I am. I read it in a book. He sits under the lamppost at the top of the lane and laughs over his first communion day, which was all a clod. He couldn't swallow the wafer, but that didn't stop his mother from parading him around Limerick with his little black suit for the collection. She said to Mikey, well, I'm not lying, so I'm not. I'm only saying to the neighbors, here's Mikey in his first communion suit. That's all I'm saying, mind you. Here's Mikey. If they think you swaled your first communion, who am I to contradict them and disappoint them? Mikey's father said, Don't worry, Cyclops. You have loads of time. Jesus didn't become a proper Catholic till he took the bread and wine at the Last Supper and he was 33 years of age. Norm Malloy said, Will you stop calling him Cyclops? He has two eyes in his head and he's not a Greek. But... Mikey's father, champion of all pint drinkers, is like my Uncle Pa Keating. He doesn't give a fiddler's fart what the world says, and that's the way I'd like to be myself. Mikey tells me, the best thing about First Communion is the collection. Your mother has to get you a new suit somehow, so you can show off to the neighbors and relations that they give you sweets and money, and you can go to the Lyric Cinema to see Charlie Chaplin. What about James Cagney? Never mind James Cagney. Lots of blather. Charlie Chaplin is your only man. But you have to be in you have to be with your mother on the collection. The grown-up people of Limerick are not going to hand out money to every little Tom, Dick, and Mick with a first communion suit that doesn't have his mother with him. Mickey got over five shillings on his first communion day and ate so many sweets and buns he threw up at the Lyric Cinema. And Frank Goggin, the ticket man, kicked him out. He says he didn't care because he had money left over and went to the Savoy Cinema the same day for a pirate film and ate Cadbury chocolate and drank lemonade till his stomach stuck out a mile. He can't wait for confirmation because 
you're older, there's another collection and that brings more money than First Communion. He'll go to the cinema for the rest of his life, sit next to the girl from the lanes and do dirty things like an expert. He loves his mother, but he'll never get married for fear he might get a wife in and out of a lunatic asylum. What's the use of getting married when you can sit in cinemas and do dirty things with girls from the lanes who don't care what they do because they already did it with their brothers? If you don't get married, you won't have any children at home bawling for tea and bread and gasping with the fit and looking in every direction with their eyes. When he's older, he's going to the pub like his father, drink pints galore, stick the finger down the throat to bring it all up, drink more pints, win the bets, and bring the money home to his mother to keep her from going demented. He says he's not a proper Catholic, which means he's doomed and he can do anything he bloody well likes. He says, I tell you more when you grow up, Frankie. You're too young now and don't know your arse from your elbow. The master, Mr. Benson, is very old. He roars and spits all over us every day. The boys in the front row hope he has no diseases from all the spit that carries all the diseases and he might be spreading consumption right and left. He tells us we have to know the Catholicism backwards, forwards, and sideways. We have to know the Ten Commandments, the Seven Virtues, Divine and Moral, the Seven Sacraments, the Seven Deadly Sins, we have to know by heart all our prayers, the Hail Mary, the Our Father, the Confetor, and the Apostles' Creed, the Act of Contrition, the Litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We have to know them in Irish and English, and if we forget the Irish word and use English, it goes into he goes into a rage and goes at us with the stick. If he had his way, he'd be learning... We'd be learning our religion in Latin, the language of the saints who communed intimately with God and his holy mother, the language of the early Christians who huddled in the catacombs and went forth to die on rack and sword, who expired in the foaming jaws of the ravenous lion. Irish is fine for patriots, English for traitors and informers, but it's Latin that gains us entrance to heaven itself. It's the Latin that martyrs prayed in when the barbarians pulled out the nails and cut the skin off inch by inch. He tells us we're a disgrace to Ireland and praise and her long sad history that he, we'd be better off in Africa praying to bush or tree. He tells us we're hopeless, the worst class he's ever had for First Communion, but... As sure as God made little apples, he'll make Catholics of us. He'll beat the idler out of us and the sanctifying grace into us. Brendan Quigley raises his hand. I call him Question Quigley because he's always asking questions. He can't help himself. Sir, he says, what is sanctifying grace? The master rolls his eyes to heaven. He's going to kill Quigley. Instead, he barks at him. Never mind what sanctifying grace is, Quigley. That's none of your business. You're here to learn the catechism and do what you're told. You're not here to ask questions. There are too many people wandering the world asking questions, and that's what has us in the state we're in. And if I find any boy in this class asking questions, I won't be responsible for what happens. Do you hear me, Quigley? I do. Do what, sir? I do, sir. 
He goes on with his speech. There are boys in the class who will never know the sanctifying grace. And why? Because of greed. I have heard them abroad in the schoolyard talking about First Communion Day, the happiest day of your life. Oh, they're talking about receiving the body and the blood of our Lord. Oh, no. They're greedy little bollagards are talking about the money they'll get, the collection. They'll go from house to house in their little suits like beggars for the collection. And will they take any of that money and send it to their little black babies in Africa? Will they think of those little pagans doomed forever for their lack of baptism and knowledge of the true faith? Question mark. Little black babies deny the knowledge of the mystical body of Christ. Limbo is packed with little black babies flying around and crying for their mothers because they've never been admitted to the infallible presence of our Lord and the glorious company of the saints, martyrs, and virgins. Oh no, it's off to the cinemas. Our first communion boys will run to wallow in the filth spewed across the world by the devil's henchmen in Hollywood. Isn't that right, McCourt? Tis, sir. Question Quigley raises his hand again. There are looks around the room, and we wonder if it's suicide he's after. What's henchman, sir? The master faces face gone white, then red. His mouth tightens and opens, and spit flies everywhere. He walks to question and drags him from his seat. He snorts and stutters, and his spits flies around the room. He flogs question across the shoulders, the bottom, the legs. He grabs him by the collar and drags him. To the front of the room. Look at this specimen, he roars. Question is shaking, crying. I'm sorry, sir. The master mocks him. I'm sorry, sir. What are you sorry for? I'm sorry for asking the question. I'll never ask a question again. The day you do, Quigley, will be the day you wish God would take you into his bosom. What will you wish, Quigley? That God will take me into his bosom, sir. Go back to your seat, you... Oh, madam. You poltroon... You thing from the far dark corner of the bog. He sits down with the stick before him on the desk. He tells Question to stop whimpering and be a man. If he hears a single boy in his class asking foolish questions or talking about the collection again, he'll flog that boy till the blood spurts. What will I do, boys? Flog the boy, sir. Till till the blood spurts, sir. Now, Colhesi, what is the sixth commandment? Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not commit adultery what? Thou shall not commit adultery, sir. What is adultery, Clohesi? Impure thoughts, impure words, impure deeds, sir. Good, Clohesi. You're a good boy. You may be slow and forgetful in the sir department, and you may not have a shoe to your foot, but you're powerful with the sixth commandment, and that will keep you pure. Paddy Clohesi has no shoes to his has no shoe to his foot. His mother shaves his head to keep the lice away. His eyes are red. His nose always snotty. The sores on his kneecaps never heal because he picks the scabs and puts them in his mouth. His clothes are rags, and he has to share with his six brothers and a sister. And he comes to school with a bloody nose or a black eye. You know he had a fight over the clothes that morning. He hates school. He. He's seven going on eight, the biggest and oldest boy in the class, and he can't wait to grow up and be 14 so that he can run away and pass for 17 and join the English army and go to India where it's nice and warm and he'll live in a tent with a dark girl with a red dot on her forehead and he'll be lying there eating figs. That's what they eat in India, figs. 
and she'll cook the curry day and night and plonk on a ukulele and he has enough money he'll send for the whole family and they'll all live in the tent especially the poor father who comes home coughing from the up great globs of blood because of the consumption then the mother sees patty on the street she says we should look at that poor boy he's a skeleton with rags and if they were making a film about the famine he'd surely be put on the middle of it i think patty likes me because of the raisin i feel a bit of guilt because i wasn't that generous in the first place the master mr benson said the government was going to give us a free lunch so we wouldn't have to be going home in the freezing weather he led us down to the cold room in the dungeons of the Leamy school where the chairwoman nelly ahern was handing out a pint of milk and a raisin bun the milk was frozen in the bottles and we had to melt it between our thighs the boys joked and said the bottles would freeze our thighs off and the master roared any more of that talk and i'll warm the backs of of ye heads we all searched our raisin buns for a raisin but nelly said they must have forgotten to put them in and she'd inquire from the man who delivered we searched again until every day till the last at last i found a raisin in my bed and held it up the boys started grousing and they wanted a raisin and nelly said it wasn't her fault she'd asked the man again now the boys were begging me for the raisin and offering every everything a slug of their milk a pencil a comic book toby mackey and i could have his said i could have his sister and mr benson heard him and took him out on the hallway and knocked him around until he howled i wanted the raisin for myself but i saw patty clohesse standing in the corner with no shoes and the room was freezing he was shivering like a dog that had been kicked and i always felt sad over kicked dogs so i walked over and gave patty the raisin because i didn't know what else to do and all the boys yelled that i was a fool and a faking egypt and i regretted the and i regretted the day and after i handed the raisin to patty i longed for it but it was too late now because he pushed it right into his mouth and gulped it and looked at me and said nothing and i said in my head what kind of an idiot are you giving away your raisin mr benson gave me a look and said nothing and nelly said ahern you're a great soul yankee frankie the priest came the priest will come soon to examine us on the catholicism and everything else the master himself has to show us how to receive holy communion he says gather around him he fills his hat with the limerick leader torn into little bits he gives patty clohesse the hat kneels on the floor tells patty to tell to take one bit of paper and place it on his tongue he shows us how to stick out the tongue and receive the bit of paper hold it for a, in a moment draw in the tongue fold your hands in prayer look towards heaven close your eyes in adoration wait for the paper to melt on your mouth swallow it and thank god for the gift the sanctifying grace wafting in on the odor of sanctity when he sticks out his tongue we have to hold on on the laugh because we never saw a big purple tongue before he opens his eyes to catch the boys who are giggling but he can't say anything because he still has god on his tongue and it is a holy moment he gets off his knees and tells us to kneel around the classroom for the holy communion practice 
He goes around the room, placing bits of paper on our tongues and mumbling in Latin. Some boys giggle and he roars at them that he didn't giggle. That if the giggling doesn't stop, it's not the Holy Communion and they'll just be getting the last rites. And what is the sacrament called, Mr. McCourt? Extreme unicorn. You know, extreme unction, sir. And I'm sorry, it says unction. I don't know what that means. I know. <laughs> That's right, McCourt. Not bad for a yank from the sinful shores of America. He tells us we have to be careful to stick our tongues far enough so that the communion wafer doesn't fall onto the floor. He says... That's the worst thing that can happen to a priest. If the wafer slides off your tongue, but the poor priest has to get it down on his two knees, pick it up with his own tongue, and lick the floor around it in case it bounced from one spot to another. The priest could get a splinter that could make his tongue swell to the size of a turnip, and that's enough to choke you and kill you entirely. He tells us the next to the relic of the true cross and communion wafer is the holiest thing in the world and our first communion is the holiest moment in our lives taking the first communion makes the master all excited he paces back and forth waves his stick tells us we must never forget that the whole the moment of the holy communion is placed on our tongues we become members of that most glorious congregation the one holy roman catholic and apostolic church that for 2,000 years, men, women, and children have died for the faith that the Irish have nothing to be ashamed of in the martyr department. Haven't we provided martyrs galore? Haven't we bared our necks to the Protestant acts? Haven't we mounted the scaffold singing as if embarking on a picnic? Haven't we, boys? Question mark. We have, sir. What have we done, boys? Question mark. Bared our necks to the Protestant acts, sir. And, question mark, mounted the scaffolding singing, sir, as if embarking on a picnic, sir. He says that perhaps in this class there is a future priest or a martyr for the faith. Though he doubts it very much for we are the laziest gang of, gang of ignoramuses it has ever been his misfortune to teach. But it takes all kinds, he says, and surely God has some purpose when he sent the likes of ye to infest the earth. Surely God has a purpose when he among us sent when among us he sent Clohesse with no shoes, Quigley with his damnable questions, and McCourt heavy with sin from America. And remember this, boys God did not send his only begotten son to hang on the cross so that Ye can go around on your first communion day with the paws clutching for the collection. Our Lord died so that they ye might be redeemed. It's enough to receive the gift of faith. Are you listening to me? Question mark. We are, sir. Then what's enough? Question mark. The gift of faith, sir. Good. Go home. The three... The night three of us sit under the light pole at the top of the lane reading Mikey, Malachi, and me. The Malloys are like us with their father drinking the dole money or the wages and leaving no money for candles or paraffin oil for the lamp. Mikey reads the books and the rest of us read comics. His father, Peter, brings books from the Carnegie Library so that he'll have something to do when he's not drinking pints. 
or when he's looking after his family anytime Mrs. Malloy is in the lunatic asylum. He lets Mikey read any books he likes, and now Mikey is reading this book about Kuchich Lane and talking as if he knows everything about him. I want to tell him I knew all about Kuchich Lane when I was three going on four, and that I saw Kuchich Lane in Dublin, and that Kuchich Lane thinks nothing of dropping into my dreams. I want to tell him, stop talking about Kuchich Lane. He's mine. He's been... He was mine years ago when I was young, but I can't because Mikey reads us a story I'd never heard before, a dirty story about Kuchich Lane, which I can never tell my father or mother, and a story of how Emmer became Kuchich Lane's wife. Kuchich Lane was getting to be an old man of 21. He was lonely and wanted to get married, which made him weak, said Mikey, and got him killed in the end. All the women in Ireland were mad for Kuchich Lane, and they wanted to marry him. He said that would be grand. He wouldn't mind marrying all the women of Ireland. If he could fight all the men of Ireland, why couldn't he marry all the women? But the king, Connor McNessa, said, That's all very well for you, Koo, but the men of Ireland don't want to be lonely in the far reaches of the night. The king decided that he would have... There would be... A contest to see who would marry Kuchich Lane, and it would be a pissing contest. All the women of Ireland assembled on the plains of Murthine who to see who could piss the longest, and it was Emer. She was the champion woman pisser of Ireland and married Kuchich Lane, and that was why, to this day, she was called Great Bladdered Emer. Mikey and Malachi laughed over this story, though I don't think Malachi understood it. He was young and far from his first communion, and he's only laughing over the word piss. When Mikey tells me I've committed a sin by listening to the story that has the word in it, and I would go to my first confession, I have to tell the priest. Malachi says, that's right, piss is a bad word, and you have to tell the priest because tis a sin word. I don't know what to do. How can I go to the priest and tell him this terrible thing in my first confession? Question mark. All the boys know what sins they're going to tell so that they get the first communion and make the collection and go to see James Cagney and eat sweets and cakes at the Lyric Cinema. The master helps us with our sins and everyone has the same sin. I hit my brother. I told a lie. I stole a penny from my mother's purse. I disobeyed my parents. I ate sausage on a Friday. I now, but now I have a sin no one else has, and the priest is going to be shocked and drag me out of the confession box into the aisle and out into the street where everyone will know I listened to a story about Kuchichlane's wife being the champion woman pisser in all of Ireland. I'll never be able to make my first communion, and my mother will hold, and mothers will hold their small children up and point at me and say, Look at him. He's like Mikey Malloy, never made his first communion, wandering around in a state of scene, never made the collection, never saw James Cagney. I'm sorry I never heard a first communion and the collection. I'm sick and I don't want any tea or bread or anything. Mam tells Dad it's a strange thing when a child won't have his bread and tea and Dad says, oh, he's just nervous over the first communion. I want to go over to him and sit on his lap and tell him that Mikey Malloy 
what Mikey Malloy did to me, but I'm too big to be sitting on laps. And if I did, Malachi would go out in the lane and tell everyone I was a big baby. I tell, like to tell my troubles to the angel on the seventh step, but he's busy bringing babies to mothers all over the world. Still, I asked my dad, Dad, does the angel on the seventh step have other jobs bringing babies besides bringing babies? He does. Would the angel on the seventh step tell you what you what to do if you didn't know what to do? Oh, he would, son. He would. That's the job of the angel. Even one on the seventh step. Dad goes for a long walk. Mom takes Michael and goes to see Grandma. Malachi plays in the lane and I have the house to myself so that I can sit on the seventh step and talk to the angel. I know he's there because the seventh step feels warmer than the other steps and there's a light on my forehead, on my head. I tell him my troubles and I hear a voice. Fear not, says the voice. He's talking backwards and I tell him I don't know what he's talking about. I do not, do not fear, says the voice. Tell the priest your sin and you'll be forgiven. Next morning, I'm up early and drinking tea with Dad and telling him about the angel on the seventh step. He places his hand on my forehead to see if I'm feeling all right. He asks if I'm sure I had a light on my head and heard a voice. And what did the voice say? I tell him the voice said, fear not. And that means do not fear. Dad tells me the angel is right. I shouldn't be afraid. And I tell him that Mike what Mikey Malloy did to me. I tell him all about great bladdered Emmer and I even use the piss word because the angel said, fear not. Dad puts down his jam jar of tea and pats the back of my hand. Och, 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 he says. And I wonder if he's going to, if he's going demented like Mrs. Malloy in and out of the lunatic asylum. But he says, is that what you're worried about last night? I tell him it is. And he says, it's not a sin, and I don't have to tell the priest. But the angel on the seventh step said I should. All right, tell the priest if you like. But the angel on the seventh step said that only because you didn't tell me first. Isn't it better to be able to tell your father your troubles rather than the angel who is a light and a voice in your head? Tis, Dad. The day before First Communion, the Master leads us to St. Joseph's Church for First Confession. We march in pairs, and if we so much as move a lip on the street of Limerick, he'll kill us on the spot and send us to hell bloated with sin. What doesn't stop the bragging about the big sins? Willie Harold is whispering about his big sin, that he's looked at his sister's naked body. Patty Hardigan says he stole ten shillings from his aunt's purse and made himself sick with ice cream and chips. Question Quigley says he ran away from home and spent half the night in a ditch with four goats. I tried to tell them about Kuchlain and Emmer, but the master chases, catches me talking and gives me a thump on the head. I kneel in the pew by the confession box and wonder if my Emmer sin is as bad as looking at your sister's naked body because I know now that some things in this world are worse than others. That's why they're, they have different sins. The sacrilege, the mortal sin, and the venial sin. When the masters and the grown-up people in, the general, in general talk about the unforgivable sin, which is a great mystery. No one knows what it is 
and you wonder how you can know if you've committed it if you if you don't know what it is. If I tell the priest about Great Bladdered Emmer and the pissing contest, he might say that's the unforgivable sin and kick me out of the confession box and I'll be disgraced all over Limerick and doomed to all hell doomed to hell, tormented forever by devils who have nothing else to do but stab me with hot pitchforks till I'm worn out. I try to listen to Willie's confession when he goes in, but all I can hear is the hissing from the priest and 